Well, hello, and thanks for joining us at Ridge Church. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you today, um, wherever you're watching and tuning in from. But, but here's my guess. If you're a Canadian person, um, if you live, whether by rental or by ownership, with a roof over your head and any form of reliable income, you live at, in many ways, one of the most plentiful and greatest points of human history. Don't believe what you see on the news. You actually live in maybe one of the most comfortable and easiest times you could possibly live. There has very seldom, if ever, been a time in history where you have the level of access, the level of ability to do what you want with your days and your life, and to enjoy all that life has to offer. Now, I know what you're thinking. You've probably started to think about the person who has just a little bit more money than you, the person who has just a slightly bigger house than you, or whoever it may be. But, but seriously, think about it. The other night, uh, Jaleesa, my wife and I, we had some family over, her mom and, and her sister-in-law and our, our nephew, and it was, it was great. And, and we realized we didn't really have any food, and so we needed to order something for dinner. And so what I did, rather than um, have to scrounge or go collect berries outside or, or go hunt an animal, which I would not even begin to know how to do, uh, what I did is I pulled out the supercomputer that sits in my pocket. Um, I tapped a couple of buttons and was able to have pizza delivered to my house. I didn't have to take out an animal. I didn't have to go outside. In fact, I sat at home, relaxed, and just waited. All I needed to do was let someone else do the work for me. And with the same internet that I used to do that, a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to watch my favorite soccer team play. The the challenge is my favorite soccer team plays in England which we're about 5,000 miles away from here in Maple Ridge, which means I have to wake up early, but it's no problem. Because of the internet, I can watch the game live with about a 1 to 1.5 second delay. I remember being frustrated one time that my phone had notified me about a goal before I had seen it on the stream that I was watching, and I couldn't believe the lack of technological insight that meant that I had more than a one-second delay on something that was happening 5,000 miles away from me. In Canada and North America, education is considered a fundamental right. And most of us, if not all of us listening to this, have had some form of formalized education. Most of us and a vast majority of people in Canada and the United States will have gone through at least high school and can read and can write can do basic math and understand the basic principles of navigating through. And not only do you learn the basics, you get to discover your passions. You get to think about if you want to go to college or go into trades or or what it is that you want to do with your life. You get a decision. You don't, like many of, much of human history has had to do, do whatever your parents did, but you can decide for yourself what you want to do. And if you, like me, live on anything more than around $2 per day, you are in by far the top few percent of the world's wealthiest people. You might feel the stretch of inflation. You might be stressed about the prices at grocery stores. But if you can still grab a latte when you feel like it, purchase the clothes you want from whatever retailer you decide, not just what you need to keep yourself warm on a cold winter's day, but what you think you might look good in. 
If you can stay subscribed to Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and all the subscription services that definitely cost less than cable, if you can do all those things, it means you are incredibly wealthy in a financial sense, giving you all sorts of capacity to do whatever you want to with your life. Historically, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is kind of this document created to help people understand God and themselves and life, it asks this question famously, you may know it. It says, what is the chief end of man or what is the purpose of life? The response in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, glorify God and enjoy him forever. The North American Catechism of 2024 would likely read something a little different. What is the chief end of mankind? Glorify myself and enjoy all that life has to offer for as long as I can. But even a child knows that getting everything you want without limit is not a gift, but a curse. Think of the old fairy tale, King Midas, Midas Touch. This king, desperate for the power to turn anything he touches into gold with a lust for that gold and that power that it would bring him, gets his wish. And what happens? He destroys his life. He ends up regretting what he has wished for. I think of an old TV show, Recess, that I grew up watching. You might recognize it. It's this cartoon of these kids who, who kind of take over the playground. The playground is their kingdom. And, and there's this one episode that's always stuck with me. And, and I remember it because I, I thought it was so cool at the beginning, but saw what happened. The, the kind of group of friends, they, they end up missing out on lunch one day at the school cafeteria. And that lunch is, well, tuna fish tacos, which is exciting for everyone until everyone who ate the tuna fish tacos gets sick and isn't able to come to school. All of a sudden, this group of young cartoon characters find that the whole of the school is their playground, literally. They eat whatever they want in the cafeteria. They take over whatever space they want on the playground. They can use the equipment they want. They can take over whatever they want to take over. Everything is their oyster and they take advantage of it. And day one is amazing. And day two is incredible. But by day three, you see these kids start to look a little bit bored. And by day four, they don't know what to do with themselves. I remember this distinct shot showing the main character who had sat on this big comfy chair that normally only the coolest kid in school got to sit on. And he's sitting there and he looks absolutely distraught. He looks totally out of it. He's zoned out. He's spaced out. His eyes glazed over and we zoom out to realize he's tipped the throne over. He's staring at the sky because he has no purpose. That, that all the wishes that came true ended up being a curse more than a blessing. And it all sounds very much to me like the teacher from the book of Ecclesiastes, where we'll be looking today. See, for Solomon, the king over Israel who's writing this letter to us, it didn't take bad fish tacos or a magical character to give him his wish of turning things to gold. He was a king. And he was a king over a large, wealthy, and protected with military might type nation. He had unlimited access, not only to money, but to power and to people. He could work with however he wanted to. And he's actually going to invite us into the process. That's what we're going to see over the course of this series. 
And so here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. He said, I said to myself, after setting up this idea that life is meaningless, but, but I'm setting out on a quest. So how does this quest begin? He says, I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure and I will enjoy what is good. I'm going to put this life to the test. I'm going to find all the things that might make a person happy and I'm going to see how they stack up in the big picture. But his response, not even a sentence and a half in, but it all turned out to be futile. And what we need to realize before we carry on is that the book of Ecclesiastes reads much more like a journal entry than an autobiography. See, an autobiography is what something writes when they want to sound impressive, and maybe you include some flaws and, and maybe you kind of take these notes of here's where I struggled or here's where I messed up. But, but ultimately, no one writes an autobiography to show how futile and meaningless their life has been. See, what we're getting to lean in on with the teacher is a journal that's private. It's a process of laying out emotions and thoughts and all those kind of things. If you've never tried journaling, I cannot recommend it enough as a means of prayer and connecting with God. But anyone who knows and keeps a journal or a diary knows, nobody's touching that. I don't want anybody to see or know the craziness or, or maybe the struggle or, or maybe the, the anger in my thoughts. It's personal. It's between me and God. And yet here, the teacher invites us in. He invites us in that we might see and understand what he is coming to see and understand. His goal is not to impress us, but to inform us. He's not trying to brag about his conquest or his glory or his power. He's inviting us into a process of what he has gone through and what he is going through to see what life is all about. He, he is taking the question that Viktor Frankl, whose name you might recognize, wrote a very important book in the, the 20th century, Man's Search for Meaning, where he writes this. He says, ultimately, a man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. See, we don't go to life and say, I wonder what the point is. We must realize that whoever we are, wherever we come from, whatever we have gone through, our life has to have a purpose. We have to make a purpose because whether you ask for it or not, you need a purpose. You need an aim. You need some sort of true north that your life is moving towards. And whether you decide that is going to be led by God and the scriptures or wise people in your life or Instagram ads and social media algorithms and whatever a politician tells you, you will pursue something and there's no lack of options. When I was in my first year of college, some friends and I decided to do what all 18, 19 year old college guys decide to do. Go on a road trip with next to no money to do basically nothing. And so we packed up a car and we drove from uh, the interior of British Columbia down to Seattle because that's a big city and it's in a different country and let's go check it out. And there was one stop we were excited for. It wasn't the Space Needle. It wasn't the Aerospace Museum to see where planes are built. There's a place called Golden Corral. Now as an 18-year-old, Golden Corral was an exciting place because it is a buffet restaurant, but it is not like other buffet restaurants and certainly not like Canadian buffet restaurants. See, Golden Corral was very cheap and very full of all sorts of food. 
We had researched it. We had found out they had a taco and Mexican food section. We found out they served steak to order. We found out they had a Brazilian section with all sorts of South American food. We found out they had a pizza and Italian section with pasta and slices of pepperoni, whatever you could have imagined. And that's not even to mention the dessert where they had chocolate fountains. There was no lack of options. And I remember driving down with my friends talking all about how do we decide what to pick? Because there's no lack of options, but I can only fit so much food in. <laughs> Solomon does this process, but, but to the next level, not just with an incredible or, or over-the-top and gluttonous feast, but rather he looks at the whole of what life has to offer, and here's what he finds and how it comes up short. First, it's laughter. Verse 2, I said about laughter, he writes, it is madness and about pleasure. What does this even accomplish? See, what I want you to know today is that laughter is beautiful. Our youth ministry just relaunched this last week. There is nothing I love more than this room that I'm in right now being filled with students who are laughing. It's the best noise in the whole world. Laughter or jokes or whatever it may be are a beautiful gift, but here's the danger in them. These kinds of things can become a way of distracting or removing ourselves from the realities of things that matter. How many of us have Thing, or pardon me, relationships that we would say are deep relationships, but if I asked you what you really knew about that person, it's not much other than what we joke about or how we kid around. How much of us use laughter to excuse sin in our lives? How much of us use laughter or joking about to excuse the things in our lives that are actually harming our relationships or pain around us? See, I think often what we make jokes about shows the places where we lack compassion. When you or someone makes a joke about a person who is experiencing homelessness and you think it's funny, it's not funny because that's a person made in the image of God, but laughter lets me to remove myself from the reality of that pain. When you make a joke about someone who's struggling with sexuality or gender identity issues, you think it's funny, but you're removing yourself from that person and their pain and what they're walking through. Laughter is beautiful, but it is a poor substitute for dealing with the real things of life. Second, the teacher tries alcohol. Verse three says, I explored with my mind the pull of wine on the body. My mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Is in, we only got so much time, so let's eat and drink and be merry. And I remember I have this distinct memory of uh, being with a big gathering of a number of our friends, and one of them were parents of a student in our youth ministry. And someone offered me a glass of wine, and, and I said, no, I, I think I'll pass right now. There's some students from our youth ministry here, and, and they probably shouldn't see me um, have alcohol. And one of the parents really interestingly said this thing, um, you, you can have the glass of wine or not, I don't care, but, but here's what I would want you to know. I would love for my child to see you as a youth pastor and a Christian have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Rather than to hide something or keep something secret or keep it under wraps, rather I'd love to see a healthy re relationship with alcohol. It is possible to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Some people are given to addiction and need to avoid it at all costs. There is wisdom in that, but there is also a healthy place for alcohol. I'm not talking about getting blisteringly drunk. I'm not talking about throwing up and passing out. 
But what we can do, even if it's not that, is we can drink alcohol or use substances to numb. To numb our pain, to numb our frustration, or just to take our minds off the challenges of caring for those around us. A glass of wine to take the edge off when I get home. A few beers to let me enjoy because I can't possibly enjoy time with my friends unless I have a bit of a buzz. All these kind of things are just used as numbing agents. There's alcohol to be used as an enjoyment and a celebration of God's good gifts, and then there's alcohol to numb. Shakespeare's character, Gratiano, in The Merchant of Venice, at one point when he's talking with another character, he becomes sad without knowing why. And then he asks for a cup of wine. He says this really interesting line. He says, let my liver rather heat with wine than my heart cool with mortifying groans. Like I would rather numb myself and harm my body, which alcohol can and will do, than deal with the reality and the pain of what I might be sad or thinking about. And I just want to say, this is alcohol, but this is any substance that's used to numb. And our mind automatically goes to drugs, illicit drugs that that give us a high, but this could be the same for food. I think in our culture, in our moment, there's many of us who use food to numb ourselves from the pain that we are facing. The teacher moves further, though. He says, beauty. He chases after to see if it could give him purpose. Verse four, I increase my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I can create beauty. I can see beauty. I can walk around and see the sky and see the mountains and see the trees. And I can even do things to increase the beauty around me. We live in what I believe truly, truly is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I drove to work this morning. There's snow on the Golden Ears Mountains. It's gorgeous. And yet there's something in it that no matter how much we obsess about beauty, it always passes us by. That no matter how many times you redecorate the house, you always want to redecorate the house. That no matter how many new clothes you buy, you always see something else that you would just look so good in. That no matter how many products you use to try and keep yourself young, age comes for us all. Beauty outside, beauty in the house, beauty in what we wear, beauty in the people we watch and idolize. You know what's always funny to me? The Oscars, this celebration of film and art, the longest part, the people, the, the, the thing that people end up talking about all sorts of time is what people wore and how good someone looked. It's so interesting, our obsession with beauty, and yet it can become so routine. It never truly fills us. We live in the most beautiful place on earth. We are a 20-minute drive here at the church from what I believe is one of the best provincial parks in our entire country. I can't remember the last time I went up there. Beauty becomes routine, and we just keep moving. Well, if not beauty, maybe power. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I own livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. See, Solomon, the king, he consolidates power. He's surrounded by people who do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. His home is filled with those who do what he may not want to. The dishes, the laundry, cleaning, you name it. Before there was a Roomba, Solomon had a 
bevy of people at his whim. But you know this, and I know this. If you get a promotion at work and all of a sudden someone works for you, that feels good for about two minutes. And then you realize that it actually takes work and it's complicated to work with someone and care for someone that having more power tends to make life more complicated, not less. We pay for someone to clean the house, but the house still gets dirty. We give our commands to our kids or our spouses in a grasp for power. And even if they do what we wanted, we're left unsatisfied and disappointed because power can never replace the depth of real relationship. Okay, not power. Maybe, maybe money? Verse 8, I amass silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Man, get that TFSA full. Man, get that bank account big. Man, check on your investments. Make sure you're getting more and more money however you can. I can't remember where I read it, but I saw a line that says, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a jet ski. And have you ever seen someone sad on a jet ski? Our bank accounts become our obsession. If I get more money, I can get more stuff. If I can get more money, I can get nicer stuff. If I get more money, I can feel safe. Famously, Rockefeller, the, the rich oil baron, was asked how much money did he need? How much more did he need? His response, just a little bit more. And then, of course, sex. The teacher says, I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines. I received all the delights of men. He had unlimited access to sexual satisfaction and fantasy and an ability to fulfill every desire without limit or constraint, which for the record is exactly the false promise of pornography. If you look at the research, all peer-reviewed studies find a very clear link between pornography consumption and mental health outcomes like depression, anxiety, loneliness, lower life satisfaction, poor self-esteem, and overall lower mental health. There's this assumption that if we could just get our sexual desires, then we'd be happy. It's a lie. I talk to so many young people who think their lust problem will disappear when they get married because if I hold on and I have this lust problem, but I can wait until marriage, then it's going to disappear on my wedding day. It doesn't. In fact, oftentimes it gets worse. Sex cannot fulfill us. Well, maybe success. Verse nine, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. He didn't just get stuff, he got respect. People liked this king. People honored this king. He had done well. He was well-loved, well-liked, well-respected. And we long for the same, but we know in the depths of our hearts that no matter how many encouragements we get, no matter how many people tell us we've done a good job, it's still the words that pierce and hurt that we remember. It's still the words said by a teacher or a coach or a friend that cut to our core that stick with us. You know, psychology says it takes about 20 positive things for every one negative thing that gets said to even out in how our mental health handles it. There's always another ladder to climb, always another step to take, always a person who's further ahead. If you live your life for success, you will never stop chasing. But, but even if you don't succeed, what if you could just love the work? Verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I didn't deny them. I didn't refuse myself any pleasure. Why? Because I took pleasure in my struggles. I worked hard. 
And this was my reward for all my struggles. Just settle into a life where you say, work hard, play hard. If I push hard enough, I don't have to like my job, but I've earned myself some pleasure and some satisfaction, be it alcohol, be it power, be it sex, whatever it may be. If I work hard enough, then I deserve it. What you will find is that if you learn to love being tired, you will run yourself to the edge, if not off the cliff of burnout. And you will take glory in answering the question, how are you doing with the great call of the North American workaholic? I'm busy. How are you? I'm busy. Verse 11, the teacher carries on. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. For him, all the pleasure and satisfaction in the world leaves him feeling frustrated, not fulfilled, angry, not at peace, defeated, not delivered. As commentator David Hubbard describes it, it turns out, as we find from the teacher, that the advertising department of the pleasures of the world does a much better job than, you ma than the manufacturing. See, pleasure over-promises, but under-delivers. And science actually backs this up. Anna Lemke, who wrote a book called Dopamine Nation, looking at how we are addicted to getting some shots of dopamine through all sorts of means, points out that our brains, if we get whatever we want, whenever we want, actually creates a cycle in which we are not able to experience pleasure from what did in the same way someone experiences the first hit of a drug that never is enough. Again, she writes this, the paradox is that hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, leads to anhedonia. Anhedonia meaning the inability to enjoy pleasure of any kind. We're left frustrated at the incomplete promises of the money, the sex, the power, the products that Amazon got to you in 24 hours. And, and we he don't heed the warning of actor and comedian Jim Carrey who disappeared from the scene and later emerged in, in an interview and said that he wished everyone could become rich and famous. Why? So they could see that it's not the answer. It invokes us to this reality that C.S. Lewis described in Mere Christianity when he wrote these words, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So forget pleasure because that won't work. In fact, clearly it's just not even on the table to give meaning to life. But what if you just became a philosopher? If you became truly wise, well, here's how the teacher describes it. He says, then I turned to wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the king's successor be like? He will do what has already been done. And I realized that there, there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So, so there is something better about living life in a wise way. Maybe you're grumpy most of the time. Maybe you don't have control. Maybe you don't always get what you want. But get above the enjoyment. Get above the pleasure. Make your life miserable. Make yourself wise. And then at the very least, you can claim that you've ascended to some higher form of being or not. The teacher carries on. Yet I also knew that the same fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? I said to myself that this too is futile. Just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both get forgotten. 
How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? As if to say, even if you're a so-called good person, even if you live life well and you're smart and you're educated and you're above all that stuff, you still die and get forgotten. The wise and the fool meet the same end and the teacher is left furious and defeated at the same frustration that you and I feel whenever we hit a bump in the road. It's simple, it's childlike, but this is what it is. We get frustrated when we realize the reality. Life's not fair. It's not. Sure, it's better to be wise and maybe that helps you out, maybe in the short term. There's no such thing as a guarantee. Karma sounds like a lovely concept until someone cuts you off in traffic and they make the light and you don't. Our efforts and striving aim to produce a good return, but we don't know what's going to happen with the economy or our job or our, our families. In spite of all our wisdom, in spite of all our best efforts, in spite of all that we do, marriages still end. The kids still walk away from the faith we raise them with. The job falls through, the sickness grows, and the surgery doesn't work, and we're left in the same space as the teacher at a breaking point. Verse 17, he hits his. Therefore, I hated life. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, because everything's futile, and it's just a pursuit of the wind. He hits his breaking point where he just says, I hate life. Because life's not fair and I'm angry about it. Throughout this chapter, the, the teacher keeps using this word. He keeps saying, I considered. Seems obvious, right? I considered, I thought about, I looked at. But, but it's actually deeper than that. The, the Hebrew word for consider here is panah. It, it doesn't just mean to think about. It means to look something in the face. Gut check level honesty. No games, no sentimentality. This is reality. It rings of Bonhoeffer's words when he writes that God is not a God of emotions, but of truth. Things are what they are, and no amount of laughter or wine or beauty or power or money or sex can ever get us away from the fact that eventually we have to look at things for what they really are. However we may try to make truth subjective, there is a way that things are, and what we try to say will not change it. Verse 18, he carries on. I hated all my work that I labored for under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he'll take over all my work that I labeled at, skillf labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored under the sun. When there is a person whose work that was done with wisdom and knowledge and skill, I, I did everything right. And yet I must give my portion to a person who has not worked for it. This too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors under the sun? All his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. And if the author here truly is Solomon, the king of Israel who wrote these words, he wrote them prophetically. Because all his fears that he writes about here come true in his son Rehoboam. After all that was built under the leadership of King Saul and King David and King Solomon, who all of us know the names of, we, most of us don't even recognize the name Rehoboam. We couldn't recall his story. Well, just quick highlights, or you can go read it in 1 Kings 12. 
See, this child of Solomon inherits the kingdom. And the people come to him and they say, life's been hard under your dad. There's been good things, but there's been hard things. And and we need a break. We need to do something a little bit better. And and this young king, he, he goes and he seeks wise counsel. He finds elders and they say, you do need to make some changes. Things do need to shift. But then he goes to his friends and his friends advise them, advise him to make it harder, make it better for himself, charge more taxes, do whatever it takes to make it better for yourself. He ends up saying to the people, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Weird burn, but okay. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, but I will make it even heavier. My father may have scourged you with whips, but I will scourge you with scorpions. What does this lead to? A revolt of the people and the eventual splitting of the Hebrew kingdom of Israel into two distinct locations that ultimately leads to the invasion and exile of the people of God. One generation, all that had been built over three generations, all the wealth, all the power, all the wisdom, all the goodness that God had done in and through the kings that he had brought before, wiped out. Historians estimate 80% of the wealth and infrastructure of Israel was wiped out by this internal conflict, not by an opposing army, not by a natural disaster, but by immature leadership and conflict within their own selves. And when the teacher looks at this reality, the lack of goodness in pleasures past, the lack of ability to make it count now, the lack of guarantee of a legacy in the future, his conclusion is, I hate this. I hate this life. And our natural reaction as North American evangelical Christians, is to go, whoa, that's not very Christian of you. Hate's a bad word. It's so negative. Because this language seems intense. And because of the intensity of this language, most of us take parts of the Bible that include this kind of language, the imprecatory Psalms, the book of Job, here in Ecclesiastes or Lamentations, and we think it's a cool place to visit, but we don't want to camp there very long because it's so negative. And yet, whether you like it or not, the Bible is filled with this kind of angry and even hateful language. Like if you read through the Psalms, not just the pretty ones that you find on Pinterest, you'll find laments and complaints to God to do something. You'll find complaints saying, God, why won't you do this? And why have you abandoned me? And where will you show up? The book of Job is all about a man who loses everything and ends up in a debate with God. He, he ends up crying out. He says, if I speak, my pain is not relieved. And if I refrain, that pain does not go away. Surely, God, you've worn me out and you've devastated my entire household. There's this anger and frustration at the way that things are. But I want you to know it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a New Testament thing. Jesus in John 11, when he's invited by Mary and Martha to Lazarus's tomb, his friend who has died, does two things. One, you know, because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the first one many of us memorize. Jesus wept. He cries. He aches at the pain of death and brokenness. And most translations also say this. Jesus was moved in his heart or was moved in his spirit. A a more direct translation of that word from the original Greek, Jesus groaned. He groaned inwardly with anger. Jesus was heartbroken by death, but he was also angry at death. Most of us have an idea that God gets angry at sin. But might you consider that God is angry 
at the brokenness and the injustice and the death in the world. Because that's not how it's meant to be. The brokenness and the sadness and the futility that the teacher described is not what we have been created for or designed for, and yet we live in the middle of brokenness and we have to face it. And that's the heartbeat of Ecclesiastes. Like Buckley's medicine, it tastes awful, but it works. Like a medicine that leaves that terrible taste in your mouth, but actually heals. The teacher's trying to get us to look things in the face. Set aside the distractions. Turn off Netflix for two minutes. Take your AirPods out and be honest. The the invitation, you don't have to fake it. God can handle the depth of what you feel and the brokenness in your world. The teacher has shown us the hopelessness of chasing pleasure. The frustration of settling for wisdom without purpose or or trying to to grasp onto a legacy we'll never see. But, But might you also see the wisdom and genuineness of his words here to face reality and and not slip into what I would call spiritual escapism. I'm going to use some Christian phrases to never deal with the pain or the brokenness or the things in my life that make me angry. I just let go and let God. God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Sure, that's true, but it's not always what we need to feel. It's not always what we need to process. We tell everyone that things are fine and we know God's working, even though we don't actually feel or see him working. God can handle our honesty because if we're not honest and we fake it, what we will slip into is a quiet cynicism and a disbelief that God will ever show up at all. So many of us long to experience God and his power at work in our lives, and yet we are not willing to be honest with him. As one pastor put it, God cannot transform who you're pretending to be. And it's only in our honesty that we can receive the invitation that God gives us. And the teacher here gives us a brief look in. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that this is a gift from God's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now at first glance, there's a little bit of hope, but it just kind of looks like more cynicism. And many scholars would look at the tone of these verses and say, This is essentially the the author saying, there's no better option. You know, this is the best we can do. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This is just as good as it gets, so you might as well enjoy. But, But interestingly, it's the great reformer Martin Luther who reflected that these verses are the core message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Rather than more cynicism, his assertion is that these few verses show us that when we stop needing the good things in our life to save us, We can enjoy them for what they really are, a gift from God. Laughter doesn't have to be an avoidance behavior. It can be a shared experience of joy in deep relationships. Alcohol doesn't have to be used to numb the mind or escape reality, but to celebrate and rejoice amongst friends and family. Beauty doesn't have to be perfect and forever, but we can appreciate the grandeur of the mountains or a great movie or a piece of architecture or a work of film or an amazing dress, whatever it may be. Money doesn't have to control us, but it becomes a tool to use for for helping people, for loving people, for improving the world around us. Power doesn't have to be used for personal gain, but can be used for the sake of others. Sex is in a desperate grab for satisfaction, but a gift in the context of covenantal relationship between two people who love 
one another. Success and work can become what we do to live out our gifting and our calling and not what we need to form our identity. We can see the pleasures of this world as gift instead of God's. How do we do this? How do we resist the pull for good things to become God things in our life? We do what Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God. A life where we look for God in every place, every action, every person we encounter, where the church service and the laundry pile are both altars where the Holy Spirit can move. Where prayer meetings and the drive-through lineup can be divine appointments for something that God is up to, where we see the image of God in our spouse, in our sisters and brothers in Christ in our small group, but also in the person at work who irritates us, in the family member who offended us at Christmas dinner, in the person strung out on fentanyl who you're afraid of. You see the image of God. Brother Lawrence, writing in his incredible book, Practicing the Presence of God, says that our transformation does not so much depend on changing our activities as it does on doing them for God rather than for ourselves. Because then we see God in the good and the bad and the ugly. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker. And in World War II, she spent her young life helping to hide Jewish people in her home away from the Nazi regime. Eventually, she and her sister were caught. They were turned in by an informant and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her sister and her smuggled in a Bible and held worship services there. And, and as the story goes, they, they found a way to be grateful to God when they got fleas. And what she wrote is that when we got fleas, we could be grateful. Why? How could you be grateful for fleas? Because the gods wouldn't go to the flea-infested place, but God would. Her sister, her sister Betsy, who, just, who died 12 days before Corey was released, said to her on her deathbed, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And I would add this, there is no pleasure so great that God is not greater still. And that's the invitation of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, is to look life right in the face with all its pain and all its suffering and all its beauty and all its glory and to realize that all we have is a gift that Jesus and his love for us came into our world and didn't call us to retreat out of it. As Henry Nouwen says, the Messiah comes not after all our misery and pain, but right in the midst of it. Let me pray for you today. Father, we thank you today that you love us and that you speak to us in the joys of this life and in the pain. That God, while oftentimes we can look at life and say, I hate this. Why is it like this? We see life and the brokenness therein and it makes us angry and it makes us sad and it leaves us longing. We thank you that you meet us there anyway. And so Lord Jesus, would you work in our hearts today to his brother Lawrence said, practice the presence of God to see you in each moment, in each face, in each activity, that every moment of our day, that every hour of our day, that all of our lives might be a place where we're invited to encounter you. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and we invite you to move and work in our lives today 
and this moment and in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.